You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. to episode 141 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs, and with me today are Laurie Norris and Sarah Kluster. Hi, ladies. Good afternoon. Hey. Let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that might be new to the program. Sarah, why don't you go first? Hi, my name is Sarah Kluster. I uh, work in child welfare in West Texas, and I am about 37 weeks pregnant right now, and everything is uncomfortable, and I can't remember anything. So we're going to see how this recording goes. <laughs> Awesome. All right, Laurie. Hi, I'm Laurie Norris in Athens, Georgia, where I work at the University of Georgia as a frontline worker. And if I say that enough, maybe I'll move up the line to get a vaccine for COVID. Um, Have I accomplished anything recently? No, no, I haven't. I'm doing really well with the pandemic. How are you guys doing? Um, That was amazing. (laughs) I am very excited to be talking to both of you. Seems like we're all in a really good headspace for this. So let's just jump right in. My name is Ilea Danner Grubbs. I live in Trustville, Alabama with my husband and our two children. Um, I'm an elementary teacher by profession, and now I homeschool full time. And uh, my husband recently had a traumatic injury to his hand, so we have been uh, rehabilitating him for the last several weeks. And uh, we've also had three newborn puppies in our house. So it's been crazy all around. Woohoo! Um, so today we That's are. What do you say? That's insane. Yeah, three but puppies. It's been a wild one week. Down. Yeah, it's been it's been a wild week. Um, but today we're going to be discussing the Netflix miniseries The Queen's Gambit, um, which is based on the novel by the same name by Walter Tevis. Um, but today we're just going to be focusing on the screen version. Um, and a couple of warnings uh, for our listeners. There will be plenty of spoilers um, that we're going to discuss. So if you haven't seen the entire show yet and you want to remain unspoiled, you might want to pause, go back and watch it, and then come back and listen. Um, and also, just as a content warning, both for the show and for this podcast, uh, the show does portray drug and alcohol use, mental illness, and suicide. And some of those things might come up uh, in our discussion today. So just to let everybody know if anybody might be sensitive to those things. Um, so to start us off, Sarah, can you just give us just a quick summary of what the show is about? Of course. Uh, the Queen's Gambit tells the story of Beth Harmon, a young orphan who grows up in the world, who grows up to be a world chess champion while dealing with drug and alcohol addiction, navigating the ups and downs of growing up and relational problems stemming from largely her childhood trauma. The story is set in Kentucky during the 1950s and 60s and several major other world cities. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy as Beth, Moses Ingram as Jolene, her friend, and many others. It was written and directed by Scott Frank and co-creator Alan Scott and was released on Netflix in October 2020. Notably, several professional chess players, including former world chess champion uh, Gary Kasparov and chess coach Bruce Pendolfini, consulted on the playing 
aspects of the show. It received several awards already and two Golden Globe nominations. And also, very particularly, amazing, amazing clothes. Yes, for sure. And actually, yeah, that's one of the first things I wanted to talk about. Like, there's so much to discuss in the show, and I know we're not going to be able to get to all of it, but I wanted to start with what we enjoyed about it. And, of course, the first thing everybody says is the clothes, right? So what did you, like, Susan, tell me what, what you loved about the clothes. I loved... Uh, I loved Beth's silhouette that even though, and I think it really nicely contrasts with her personality, which I know we're going to get to because Beth has a very, a very difficult personality that results from a lot of her trauma that I know we're going to get into, but she has these beautifully classic 1960s silhouettes with these kind of long skater skirts. Um, She has this, she always has uh, beautiful hair ornamentation of a headband or a bow. And so it really contrasts her as this kind of beautiful feminine presence with all of the men around her who are wearing, you know, just slacks, button up shirts. But it also contrasts this beautifully feminine uh, clothing with kind of the harshness of her personality, I would think, as well, Mm -hmm. because she wears these beautiful clothes. But that really is not right. But the kind of the sweetness that you get from some of her clothes with bows and frills doesn't actually complement her her own actual personality. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what else did what else did you guys really like about the show? That green velvet shirt she wears in Russia, I coveted it so desperately. <laughs> it's oh. And then her rain, her rain gear in Mexico City. Basically, I want to travel internationally and dress like her. So you want to travel internationally in the in the sixties? No, currently, <laughs> right now, gotcha. um, I will match all of my multi-layered face masks to my velvet emerald velvet. Bow neck blouse. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. So, uh, like, she, particularly her outerwear. Like when she's in Russia, like the hats and the overcoats are just really outstanding. And I actually just googled like how to dress like Beth Harmon, and there is a huge amount of like because she has berets and bows and everything, and so all of the like. All of the, the the large fashion sites have these like slideshows, like, well, this is how you, you can get a coat that looks like the one she wore in Russia, which I find one particularly funny because we're not going anywhere. <laughs> Good point. Uh, nobody's going anywhere that we need these clothes, but they are really inspirational, and they're they ha- they all have that beautifully tailored look, which I think also. Really contrast, because let's be honest, we were all watching the show at home wearing either sweat or yoga pants. True, true. And so the, I think that there, I think a huge portion of this is this, like, this woman who's doing great things and is beautifully dressed and quaffed out there in the world. And, like, we're sitting here in, like, my oversized, like, sweatshirt that has, you know, chocolate ice cream stains on it or something. Or, like, whatever it is that was your equivalency of that, right? I think that's a good point. And so yeah. Like, the- oh, my gosh, this is this wonderfully exotic mm-hmm. thing that it feels so different from my life. And I'm like, this is a woman from Kentucky. She, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good point that there is a part of the 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 phenomenon that is this show that cannot be removed from the fact that it came out in the middle of 
the 2020 pandemic. Like there's just, there's something that I don't know that it would have resonated with people uh, in a normal year like it did this year, you know, but it, it was an escapism that I think that we needed in general and specifically the visuals, the, the whole, the cinematography, the clothing, the hair, the makeup, all of that, I think really resonated with people who just needed to see something beautiful. They just needed to be ex- to experience and kind of um, envelop themselves in these ideas of travel and beauty and style that, that we just have not have had access to for a while. I think that's a good point. Was there anything else that you guys really liked besides the clothes? Well, and the, the most beautiful thing on the on the show besides the actual clothes is Anya Taylor Joy, yeah, for who sure. apparently just plays beautiful gammon females because she also played Emma um, in the mo- movie version mm-hmm. last year, I believe, mm-hmm. and she oh, also gosh. kind of did the same thing of these just beautiful shots of her meticulously coiffed and in gorgeous clothes. Right, it was like ninety percent of that movie. Yeah, I saw somebody refer to her as Elfin, and I felt like that was a very good descriptive word for her. Like, she's just almost otherworldly in the way her presence and the way that she, you know, holds herself and then her style and everything. Well, one thing I really like. They're so wide set. Yes, yes, I agree. They're captivating and unsettling. That is, yes, 100% accurate. Uh, that is true. She also has an anime character quality to them because they're just very wide set, Mm -hmm. right? Um. And so much of the movie is, you know, staring at her over the board and, like, close-ups of her face. Yes, I agree. It it would not work as a movie if you didn't have the caliber actress that she is to be able to pull it off. Like, she has to carry that movie, right? There's not. It's not like an ensemble cast where everybody can just do a little bit. Like, if she cannot communicate enough in her face, then it doesn't work. So, yeah, she does a lot of the, the communicating and stuff. I really liked also, like, as a mom of gifted kids, I appreciated that – uh, the way they depicted her giftedness. Um, like a lot of times in popular media, giftedness is shown as just kind of this immediate, intuitive, like master of a subject without having to work at it. They're just born knowing how to play chess or they're born knowing how to paint or whatever, you know. And um, I really liked that um, she had to work at it too. Like she was born with this gift, but she also, um, she had to, to read, she had to study, she practiced all the time. Like, um and it, that's a problem for gifted kids that they grow up sometimes to think that if they're not immediately good at something, then it's just not their thing or that they're, they must be bad at it because they're used to, you know, having kind of this you know, ability to jump in. And I really like that it that she was shown having to work at something, even though she had a natural proclivity towards it. I thought that was important. I completely agree. That's something I would always have to tell my students when I was uh, teaching a remedial writing course is that, a lot of students would like to say that, like, well, I'm just bad at writing, and so therefore it's not my fault, and I don't really have to do anything to get better at it because I'm just not naturally gifted at it. And I would always talk with them, like, you know, if we think about somebody like LeBron James or Beyonce, like, yes, they have an incredible natural talent for this, but if LeBron James just never practiced, he would still be bad at basketball. Right. Right. He might be better than me, but he's not going to be good enough to do what he needs to do on the national stage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a huge portion of this is like, how do you, how do you, like you said, like, how do you show like somebody who is naturally kind of a genius at it? Because she is a genius chess player, but she still has to work at it. Mm -hmm. And I think what you see a lot is, you know, not only do we see kind of, we see kind of the two generations of genius, right? And I don't remember what episode it is, but we we see that her mother is brilliant as well, right? Like yes. we see 
we see the cover of her dissertation mm-hmm. from like Dartmouth or Cornell or someplace right like that, right? Where she has gotten her mo- her mother has gotten a doctorate in mathematics right. or something like that, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so what you you have is, but her mother also kind of suffers from this madness and genius thing, right? Like her mother has significant mental health issues mm-hmm. at a time where that wasn't a thing that you could really get help for or it wasn't recognized or it was just, well, she just has female problems or whatever, right? And so you kind of have this second generation of like, okay, how how is this manifesting and like what is Beth doing that is either similar or different because than her mother because she has either different resources or she's in a different environment, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, any other things that we liked before we move on to some critiques that we had? I have one really horrible pun <laughs> about Beth's mom. Can I say it? Go for it. Okay. So I'm I'm the the like literature nerd here, but I kept watching it thinking that oh, Alice Harmon is the mad woman who lives in the attic of Beth's brain. I'm sorry, <laughs> I had to put that. Out. That is completely true, and that and I will say that is 100% true, and it is like literally and figuratively in the sense of like trauma because that kind of trauma that she has observed her whole life doesn't leave you like even if you have and again we're going to get into all that later but even if you have you know you you're adopted all this stuff that trauma that she has suffered is still going to be with you and it's not necessarily overcoming it and trying to get over it but like how do you live with Mm -hmm. it now that it's there true exactly and that's one of the things that i liked about what the show was also frustrated with and i'm going to tie this in to uh feminism in a second so one thing i really liked and i wish they did better i liked the moments that they focalized through beth's memory by the way that they use flashbacks that way and in the first episode with beth as a little kid when she takes tranquilizers for the first time and the camera takes on her perspective and gets all woozy and weird that's amazing that is film showing not telling but one of the problems that I think this show has is that, um, let's see, it tries to over-explain a lot of things and tries to present women as envisioned by a man who did not talk to any women at all when he wrote the script. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, but I agree with what because we are going to talk about that in a second. I do agree. I love the flashbacks, though. Um, my favorite was right at the beginning when she's in the orphanage and Jolene says, what was the last thing your mom says, said to you? And she has this like three second flashback where she's in the car and her mom turns to her and says, close your eyes. And you can see that she's crying and she's heading straight for this truck. And in that like three seconds, you understand everything. That was an amazing moment for me to see like how, like you said, like they showed, they didn't tell, they didn't have her say, my mom committed suicide or whatever like they just showed this moment this one moment and you learned everything about the mom about her past like it was amazing I just that moment took my breath away because that was some really good writing and really good cinematography just the way that they did that I thought was really good um so yeah I did I did like the way that they did the flashbacks I think I think that scene right there showed the potential Mm -hmm. for the actual series as like filmic art Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I think it then 
as they say, lost the plot yes. a little bit. <laughs> so let's get into some of that. I wanted to spend a moment talking about the things we liked because I do think that this is a complex show that is not something you can easily pan or easily adore. I think that it, it has a lot of good to it and it has a lot of problematic aspects of it. And I wanted to make sure that we gave some time to um, the things that were really positive about it and the things that people have loved. Obviously, it's one of a bunch of awards. It's It's doing quite well for itself. And there are plenty of glowing reviews and and takes on this um, that you can find. Um, but there were a couple of specific topics that I wanted to address that I felt like were worth getting into a little bit deeper. Um, and since we just said the feminism one, obviously, um, since this is the Christian Feminist Podcast, um, we're going to start with that one. Um, so when I watched this, I really, because it's a story about a young woman in a predominantly male field, obviously the, the feminist aspect is going to be a big deal. And I felt like the writers wanted it to be a big deal. I felt like they wanted it to be at least like an inspirational girl overcoming odds kind of trope. And that's what I wanted it to be. You know, you see the preview of this girl and she's surrounded by men and she's winning and you're like, yeah, that looks exciting. Um, but I don't think that they succeeded. I don't think that they landed the plane. Um, it took me like two episodes before I looked up. I assumed this was a true story when I started watching it. Um, and I finally looked up, like, who is this based on, and realized it was based on nobody. <laughs> um, and, and I think, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, I think that that has a lot to do with, with some of the problematic aspects to it. But she never really encounters any true adversity because she's a woman. Um, and this is a time when, when that was a big deal. You know, conformity was really emphasized, especially for women. Um, there's a few passive comments where they say, well, we don't have a women's division, or, you know, don't you think you should be you know, cleaning house or whatever the interviewer says. But those are very, very kind of asides that never really have any weight behind them. There's the other significant male characters, nobody is looking at, like, Benny and some of them um, and Borgoff. None of them are like, oh, because you're a woman, you cannot play. Right, right, like, exactly. She never gets told that directly. Now, she kind of gets told that a little bit in the very first the one very she goes to. yes. Yeah, at the very but beginning, they say it. just because she doesn't know anything, right? Right. Like, and so she's like, do I have to have a rank? Do I have to have this? And they're right. like, you sure you want to do this? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. But after that, she pretty much is worshipped and adored yes. by every man she needs. Exactly. Her gender seems to make her even more exciting to people. They love her even more because she's a woman and she's winning, which to me is this, like, really anachronistic, like, girl power ethic to a time period when women weren't even allowed to get their own bank account without their husband's permission. You know, like, the idea that all of these men around her would be rooting for her and excited for her to beat them and to beat other men and to excel in this male, not just male-dominated, but exclusively male, almost exclusively male. I mean, we see one other girl, and I think they talk about one uh, Russian um, woman who is a chess player um, at the very end? Yeah. But but they, for the most part, it's never played men. That she is the, she is the women's champion, but has never played men. Which is really interesting because that's actually a real person that they reference, and she actually had played men by that point, and she beat even one of the grandmasters. So like she was really mad that they misattributed her career. Um, after this, which I think is really interesting. If you're going to go to all the trouble to use a real example in your fake show, why would you not, um, get, you know, make it a real uh, tell the real story of her um but anyway they, they she never like yeah she she never st- speaks up for other women um there's one girl at the very beginning at the first chess tournament that helps her um and then comes back later to kind of say you inspired me or you know i'm really glad that i was there and and that just blows her off like she doesn't do anything to help other women um she doesn't 
it just seems like they, they kept wanting to make a statement, like that scene with that other girl who comes back and is talking to her when she's kind of at her lowest point. Like, it could have been something, but then it just fizzled. It just it just kind of died out. Um, and, and she's just so defined by the men in her life. Um, from the very beginning, you know, Mr. Scheibel, her, the, the janitor that teaches her to play, um, and then, like, all these, uh, the, the male teacher at the other school, and then all these competitors that she has who end up, a lot of them being her, her romantic partners at some point. They all adore her, um, or they're at least fascinated by her. They're never angry when she wins. I mean, some of them are, like, angry enough to kind of grumble, but they're still having a beer together. So, you know, I've had situations where, uh, you know, I won and men were so mad at me that they left the room. And this was, like, over a board game. Like, I can't, uh, you know, I just don't understand how, like, I'm supposed to believe that in the 50s and 60s that these guys are like, oh, man, you won. Let's go get a beer together, you know. <laughs> um, okay. So I have a theory on this. Yes. You probably weren't hot enough, is what I'm telling you, is what the actual answer is. You weren't hot enough. Probably true. Exactly. Exactly. Not only is Anya Taylor-Joy just, like, breathtakingly beautiful, Mm -hmm. but the way that Beth is written, she is gorgeous. So all of these goobers that she is surrounding herself with are just, no, cannot say that word. We are a family-friendly podcast. Um, they are struck by her feminine wiles, <laughs> but that that is something that I think is a problem with this show because the I was so watching the credits the first time a female name shows up in a position of power behind the scenes is an editor, and then also. The, the the costumer, which isn't which is telling. The things that we love best are all the women that are involved, hmm. and the things that frustrate us most were determined entirely and solely by men. <clears throat> uh huh. Yeah. It's kind of like the new Mulan, where they made a big deal of like, oh, we use all Asian actors. Like, well, did you use anybody who was Chinese for the script, or for costumes, or for architecture, or for fighting, and anything that would make it realistic? They're like. No, but we did have an all-Asian cast. Like, that doesn't really do much. It mm-hmm. still makes the movie horrible. Exact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And in the end, it's all of the, like, problems that she have. Like, they they just they just keep coming back to her, right? Like, even at one point, um, one of the guys, and I forget his name because they all kind of blend together as guys who adore her. Um, but he gets really mad. He won't give her money. But in the end, he's going to come back and, and help her when she needs it most. Uh, you know, there's, was that Benny? Yes. That the guy, Benny? Okay. Yes. Yeah. He, See, that is so weird about the show. Everyone is there are no Americans in this show. It's all British people with American accents. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and his show name may be Benny, but he is officially either that little boy from Love Actually or stupid Jojen from Game of Thrones. That is all that I can think of when I see him walking around like a gay pirate elf. <laughs> he, no, he looks like, no, he's like a skinny, he's like a little, he, he looks like a little kid trying to dress up as Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. Yeah, that's legit. <laughs> that's legit. Like, it was kind of like, because here's the thing, they don't really say where he's from in the U.S., and so I'm wondering if they're, but like, to me, that's like a British person, like trying, to, like, well, this is what they wear in America, where the cowboy was little. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, no, no, that's, nobody in Texas actually dresses that way, um, you know. And so I think 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting because when she's defined by the men in her life, the only man in her life that she had any sort of positive, real positive association with is Mr. Scheibel. And that's the only father figure she's ever had who's ever provided for her, right? Like, he gave, what, $10 for her to enter that chess tournament? Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's the only monetary support she has ever received from a man her entire life. Her biological father, who we see through flashbacks, wants to be kind of part of her life, right? In the very beginning, he's chasing after her mom, let me see my daughter. But then eventually mom's mental health issues drive him away to the point where he's just like, no, I I have anything. Like, I finally moved on. I finally did the thing you wanted me to. You can't bring me back in, right? And, like, that's one of the things that to me is saddest because if he if he knows how incredibly independent Beth's mom is, I don't even think we know her name, do we? I mean, I'm sure maybe it says it on the, the cover of her yeah. of her book, but, like, we always just call her Beth's mom. Like, I don't think she's, like, named name, like, um, that, you know, surely, like, that's the basically the thing he does, like, right before she tra- decides to commit suicide is, well, maybe I can take her to her father, right, who she's, who has, and at this point, Beth is nine or ten. She's never let Beth see her father, right? Mm-hmm. And then Beth is finally adopted later, and her adoptive father wants nothing to do with her. And so it kind of makes sense that, like, every time there's been a significant man in her life, that man wants nothing to do with her, so she kind of just treats them the same way. Like, in re- that, you know, well, if they want nothing to do with me, then I want nothing to do with them. It's kind of how it seems to me a little bit in her relationship with men. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's accurate, and I think that that ties into the trauma that we're going to be talking about, too. The, the um, responses to childhood trauma, for sure. Yeah. Um, what do we think is, um, and then we also have Beth, like, she has this defined relationship with men, but then her uh, her adopted mother um, also is kind of defined by her relationship with men. Mm-hmm. And has I think that's really interesting because even though she has been really, really hurt by her relationship with her current husband, because they never get a divorce, right? It doesn't seem like. I, I can't imagine that in the 1960s in Kentucky that they got divorced, that they just kind of separated, right? Yeah, I don't think that it says that they did. Um, but she, even she, though she's had this kind of trauma from this this horrible marriage where he doesn't respect her, even she at least has hope of like new interactions and new relationships with the uh, the character who mm-hmm. the uh, the kind of male, not really a gigolo. Though. He seems like he is actually there, and then but he's kind of just there for a, for some fun, and then is gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, her hope of romantic oh, relationships, men. and then you know Beth is just like just has no does not ever express personal desire for it herself like if it shows up for her she's like i mean i guess i could take some like if you're offering but like she doesn't seem to really have a personal desire for an actual real relationship yeah her her kind of emotional numbness throughout is one of her defining traits um which again is you know part of the the trauma reaction um before we move on to the next thing because we are going to talk about that um the other thing that i just want to touch on as far as the feminist aspect is this idea that this story is not true, Um, that this is not based on a true story. It's not based on a person. Um, If it were true, I think I would have a completely different reaction to um, the feminist implications or lack thereof. You know, if this were really how it happened, then cool, you know, good for her. She did, she did this thing, but, but there's not, there's no Beth Harmon. There's no real person. As a matter of fact, no woman has ever won the chess world championship to this day. 
There's a separate women's world championship that obviously has been won by all only women because it's only women competing. Um, but as of today, as of right now, um, the highest rank that any woman has ever gotten is the current woman who is the highest ranked, and she's 88th on the list. So the sh- the show ends up being more of this weird kind of gender swapped Bobby Fisher fanfic <laughs> that pretends that gender isn't an issue. Then it is like an honest look at the struggles that a woman would face in both a male-dominated field and time period. Um, and I know a lot of people defend it by saying, well, it's just entertainment, it's escapism. But setting a show in a real historical time and place and then ignoring the real issues and struggles of that time and place, that's not escapism, that's erasure. And, and imagining a character who shatters gender norms just by being like this intelligent prodigy when real women have yet to break through those barriers even today, that's not inspiring. That's insulting to the women who are still pushing against those barriers in this field of competitive chess. Like, I think if it had been said You're in the present... You're making me think a little bit of the other um, huge female-centered Netflix show that people are freaking out about, Bridgerton. And I'm sure we'll eventually have an episode about that. Mm-hmm. But same thing on that, that... If we're saying that this is set in a real world with like real historical characters, then we, we have to we need to be a little more like, no, this is how it was. Right, right. And if it were set in the present or even in the future a little bit, I think that the, it, like the exact same story, but in the present or the future, I think I would have liked it better um, because I love the idea of like all of these men just not being threatened by this woman, you know, supporting her and and you know cheering them on. And like the the rescue session at the end was a little when when she needs every man who has ever been in her life who is still alive to like get on the phone and help her win because she can't do it herself. Like that was a little, but, but in general, I like the idea of them supporting her. I just think that it's very unrealistic to put that in the fifties and sixties. Um, it's, it's just a misrepresentation of the very real struggles of women at that time. You know, so one of the things that I do like uh, on it is that at least I do think that that, that the one thing I will say that I think at the end that it seems to show is Beth her whole life has been a complete loner. And one of the things they talk about in the show is, you know, well, why are the Russians so much better than the Americans? Why are they so much right. better? And they talk about that it's not even naturally, it's not necessarily this natural chess ability, but it is that they essentially, they're communists about it, right? Like they work as teams, whereas the Americans tend to play a much more solitary individual game, right? Right. And so you kind of have these individual Americans competing, but in Russia that you have, because it's this point of national pride, you have all these people coming together to help the absolute best, you know, and we see that a couple of times in the last episode, right, where Beth right. is kind of like walking down the hall and she sees uh, Borgoff and like the, uh, mm-hmm. the older player who she's uh, currently in the middle of a game with. And he's like, okay, this is what she's going to do. And this is what she did. And they're like, they're really, that it's a much more communal thing. Whereas, you know, the way Beth has always played is Beth plays by herself. She is a loner. And so I think at least for her, the show is attempting to show character growth for her by having her actually accept help. Right. Sure. Because that's, I, that's definitely what they're done. trying. And so I think it was supposed to be the moment of, oh, look at this character growth. But it, but I will say it did seem a little odd that, like, hey, here are all these guys who she's had sex with right. and then kind of totally cast aside who are still like, let's still be here for her, right? Like, And have already rejected like, her previously, like said, like, no, I'm not going to help you get to Russia because you misused me. But then just kidding, I'll help you. It's fine. Yeah, I think if they had, I think if there had been, like, Maybe one or maybe only one guy in the group had been like that, but yes. like so many of them had were like, we were previously in love with you and you rejected us, and we were 
mad about this, um, even if they were right to be upset about the way she treated them, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It just, I, I, I think that I, I think that they were definitely going for. She's had a huge like moment of character growth. Yes, but the way that it was portrayed, that like all these other people were just like, well, we don't care. Like, no, I think you would probably care. Yeah, and that just gets to my point about that there are no real stakes for her. Like, nothing that she does has any real consequences when it matters. It all just kind of always ends up fine. Yeah, other people have consequences. Yes, yeah, yeah, but like it, it just it could have been great. Being an alcoholic. Right. Yeah, I think the show could have been a lot greater if they had had some real consequences from her that had caused her to grow as a person and not just have everybody else grow around her to, like, you know, even, yeah, I don't want to get too far into it. But, yeah, I agree. I I can tell that that's what they were trying to do, the whole, you know, the Russians work together, we work separately, we have to learn to work together. Like, that's, they did that. Like, I get that. Um, But the fact that it was all men helping the one woman, like, they could have brought in the other girl, they could have, like, there are other things that they could, or like you said, even just one or two of them, I think maybe, um, it was definitely a feel-good moment, but from a story perspective, I felt like it was a little, a little off. Um, but okay, let's talk about one of the other big issues that has gotten some attention, um, is the issue of race in this, uh, show. Um, Lori, why don't you start us off by, um, what you think about or what you've read about the way that race played a part in this show. Okay, so not only is Beth saved by men who are struck by her, she is also rescued at all times by a magical Negro who only exists to save her. So uh, my my take on Jolene's character, uh, not the actress. Uh, the actress does a spectacular job right. with the limited stuff she's given. I want I want to put that out there. This is not on the actor who portrays Jolene at all. This is on the people who created the character of Jolene and gave her such limited interiority. Um, So Jolene exists in four episodes, the first two and the final two, because she needs to be there to safely bring Beth into the scary world of the orphanage, teach her how to deal with the scary world of the orphanage, and then disappear entirely until (gasps) rock bottom, when someone needs to rescue her. Don't worry, we have a magical Negro that we're going to now make look like Foxy Brown. Oh. My. Glob. (laughs) I have so many thoughts, but okay. Here's some issues that I have with not just Jolene, because Jolene is done bad by this show. She is such a fascinating character. She's the only character of color on the show that actually acknowledges the disparities between black and white people or or just the power dynamics that exist between races. You don't even get that when they're in Mexico. Uh and she's not the only person of color in in the the orphanage. Mr. Ferguson is the orderly, the person who has to hand out all the tranquilizers to the kids. He's fascinating. He's a black man, but kind of written as if it's just colorblind casting because he has no commentary whatsoever about his role as a black man. The like the only man who regularly interacts with these young girls, these young white girls mostly. And he he recites Shakespeare to them on the regular. 
he's a fascinating character. He's also forced to 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 punish Jolene over and over again. He's the one who has to make her eat a bar of soap every time she swears, which is like every six minutes because she's a sassy black woman. Um, but the show does nothing with that. The show does nothing with the the young lady who Beth sits down next to in the first episode, who's who. Um, oh, she's the unnamed girl who who explains Fish Fridays to Beth, and it just she just happens to be black. All of these things they just happen to be black, except for Jolene, who's very black. We know that because she calls Beth Cracker. It's fine. They're family. I cannot stand the way race is used in this show. It's like they've never even experienced life in Kentucky. They know that Kentucky is a word, and so they picked it. And that's where they placed it. Someone threw a dart at a board and just hit randomly a deep south kind of, okay, fine, we'll have a black person. I am, I cannot... I'm an, uh, I'm unintelligible about the way that I. I'm so glad. I was I was when I was watching it. I the thing I kept thinking was one. And again, I, I'm gonna have a lot of weird technical knowledge about this because my job is I am a supervisor and I put children and I work with foster children. And my job is to get them into the best place to be. So whether that be a foster home, group home residential treatment if that's needed like that's my whole job and so some of the stuff I'm like I have like an un an, a very weird fascination with very tiny details and so one of the things I was sitting there thinking I was like would they even have been allowed like if in the 1960s would they would they would are black and white children even in the same orphanages no okay so I looked that up because I had the like, same question and no they were not desegregated until like the 1980s in, in Kentucky that was, see, that was my thought. Like, so I can totally see, I can totally, I totally see that you could have black caretakers, um, in a white facility because especially you would, especially in a janitorial role, like, like that, that's a very normal thing that you would have had in the South, right? Like, you know, they're not dog, but like a janitorial, something like that. Like, okay, I, I totally see that you could have, um, African American adults in that sense. But I just kept sitting here thinking, I was like, why? There's no way that these these kiddos would have mm-hmm. been in the same yeah. facility. Yeah. And, Even today, um, most of them in Kentucky are segregated. Like, and they have like they have different reasons that they so say one of the for things, it. And the other thing that I think you also see is, and one of the things you also see is this does seem to be a, it's 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 monitored by the state, but it is it is not necessarily run by the state, right? And so the you get the idea of like, you know, they're giving all the kids tranquilizers to keep them like, to keep to keep their behavior level, which is super accurate, mm-hmm. um, to even how it is now. And so I I know I think it's just really interesting that, yeah, we kind of have this weird magical Negro problem of that, you know, hey person I haven't talked to in ten years, I'm going to show up and give you my life savings. Mm-hmm. That I could be using to go to college, mm-hmm. buy a car, mm-hmm. like move to a place that isn't like move to a place up north that doesn't have some of the issues that we have here. Like, nope, I am going somebody who's never reached out to me. Somebody who's. Yeah, it, there very much is that feel. And again, Beth doesn't actually even seem super grateful for it. She's like, OK, 
thank you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it, you know, it's just, it's all like, it's just due to her. Um, and that is very, very frustrating because Beth did not, see, at no point when Beth gets adopted and moves away, did, did she ever seem to pine or miss her friend? I think if they had done a better job of that in the beginning of showing her, maybe trying to write Jolene a letter right. or like something showing that she missed this person, right? Right. Or that she tried to look her up and have any sort of contact. But it's very easily been at least eight or nine years, right, since they've really been in contact. And this woman just gives her all of her stuff, gives her this money mm-hmm. of this, and it's it's fairly significant amount. And so I I think that they if they had done any sort of, like, actually show because they don't even seem like they're that close when they're there that she – Jolene is there to explain things to her, but you never see them interacting in a friendly manner of where they're just visiting, hanging out, doing each other's hair, just talk, like having normal friendship interaction. It's always Jolene is this kind of older girl who I, who I'm wondering, is she played, is she played by the same actress in every single scene, even when she's supposed to be a kid? Cause we have an, a, an actual child actor playing young, uh, playing young Beth, but, no, Moses is is Jolene throughout the series. Um, there's a different actor who plays uh, Beth when she's yeah, my child. But, and so that was my thought is also you kind of, I guess they're really trying to show like Jolene is like much older. And, and you definitely, and I will, and Lord knows I could get into some of these details. You definitely have kind of older institutionalized children who have been at certain facilities for a while. They know the ropes like that. That's a very much a real thing. But, you know, it looked weird because the actress, I think it's supposed to be 14 and she's a full size adult. Who's probably like 27. Right. And she's trying to play a 14 year old mm-hmm. and she's just way too developed um, height physicality wise. Like you could just like her, her face just doesn't, you know, she does not have that tiny pixie gammon look to her because she's just an actual adult woman. Um, and so it just, it, it's very odd because there there's, there's nothing that kind of, shows Beth like being friends with her early on or Beth missing her at all or trying to reach back out to her. It's, you know, Hey, remember this character we haven't talked about in like eight hours of of TV. Guess who's back. Yeah. And interestingly, they actually have two separate children play Beth at two different times. So they go, you know, way out of their way to show the nuance of, of Beth's growth as, you know, from small child to medium child to adult. But, but with, Jolene, they just use one person all the way through. Like it's, you know, um, I and, and I think this is similar to the gender issue in a lot of ways. With the they treat race like it's just kind of a minor inconvenience that is, you know, somewhat of a setback. But ultimately, it's overcomable if you have the right attitude and work hard enough. You know, there's a conversation in the car where um, Jolene kind of talks about her job, and um, you know, she mentions a couple of things about you know because well, she's a lover who happens to give her the car, right? Right. Yeah, but but they don't ever talk about like the massive injustices and the struggles for civil rights that are ramping up like exactly as they speak in the 60s. You know, it's just it feels very uh, removed from reality. And again, you know, if this were in the present day, it wouldn't be such an issue. But to completely erase that history and act like this, you know, black woman exists only to help this white woman find, you know, her her place in the orphanage and then her place in society. And, and all. it just feels very um, like the, the modern day mammy trope that, that has been, 
kind of leveled against it as a criticism that the you know it's a it's a new version of the old idea of the the mammy character who's there to um you know nurse and nurture this white person to success while staying in the background and staying on the sidelines and not ever having any kind of self-actualization yeah. or anything like that. I would totally agree because 100% if, you know, may, maybe even if they could, like, I feel like there's so many more ways they could have made that really work. They could, like I said, they could have had Beth reach out, like, shown that Beth, had, like, when she moved, like, oh, she missed her friend, right, that there was some deeper emotional connection. Or maybe Beth, maybe they could have had, well, Beth taught her to play chess. And so even though she's not... Mm-hmm. You know, even though she's not a, a a prodigy, she at least kind of can talk with her about it. it's like, oh well, this is uh, this is the thing I grew to love, and you know, I maybe I played in some local tournaments. Like there could have been something there, right? Mm-hmm. Not that she was going to teach that's how to play chess, but that they had some sort of connection other than the fact that they happened to sit next to each other. Right. Right. Well, and there's just no give and take. It's not a real relationship, right? Like, Beth never does anything for Jolene. There's there, there's no sense of this is a healthy, reciprocal relationship where both people are getting, you know, something out of it on an emotional level or whatever. It's just all Jolene taking care of Beth at every stage of her life when she needs help. To be fair, that is Beth with every human being that she interacts with. Yeah, and that's that's true. That's true. All right, well, the other big thing, and we've kind of already alluded to it a couple of times, is um, the way that this show deals with trauma, specifically um, adverse childhood experiences. Um, we see Beth grow up, you know, and and some of the things that happened to her. So, Sarah, since you, you already kind of told us a little bit about your credentials, that you are uniquely qualified to talk about this, why don't you um, give us your uh, kind of overview of what how this show deals with trauma? So, this show very specifically deals with Beth's childhood trauma in a number of ways. And one of the things I do think is significant to remember is that the trauma that Beth suffers does not just end once her mother dies. She has ongoing trauma as most children in institutional foster care do. And so when we talk about kids who are in foster care, institutional living, a lot of times we'll talk about, we'll, we'll use the acronym ACEs and that's a very, uh, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so those, it's a generally about a 10-question little survey that people can say, like, okay, what is what trauma level did you experience as a child? And I'm pretty lucky. I've taken this. People don't believe me. I've taken this test, and I scored a zero on it. I, of of the, the major ACEs of things of like physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, uh, mental illness, domestic violence, incarceration, substance abuse, and divorce are kind of the, the, the big ten things that if any of these things happen to you basically before you were 18, then this is considered a significant childhood experience. And not that every child who, you know, not that every child of divorce is going to become the cold-hearted um, whatnot that that is, but that these things are more likely to happen. Trauma happens uh, with these things. And so for Beth, we know that I would say, so Beth, we would know probably has, she has uh, emotional abuse from her mother that, and what I would, I would argue that a lot of the stuff that her mother tells her, you can't trust anyone. Nobody can, de- you can't depend on anyone, but you all this, that is, a, that is considered emotional abuse. Um, 
and emotional abuse is something that the state can remove children for. It's very difficult to do, but you because you have to be able to prove a, a change in behavior. But I would argue that a lot of the stuff that her mom does is emotional abuse to her. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. There's there's a lot. Of, she ha- suffers physical neglect, right? That they're basically wandering around um, in terms of they don't really have a place to live. They don't have very much food to eat. Um, she also is going to, let's be honest, get some of that neglect, physical, emotional neglect, neglect, even when she's in her institutional setting. And so maybe she's not going to get as much to eat as she would like or the emotional neglect of not having a regular caregiver, right? She's going to have rotating staff. She's not going to be able to have the only real emotional attachment she forms is with Mr. Scheibel. And then because that's inappropriate, they cut that off from her, right? And so the only positive adult interaction that she had, they're like, no, you can't have that anymore. So she has this kind of emotional neglect where she doesn't have anyone feeding that sense of self-worth. She has the mental illness from her mother. Um, she has the divorce um, f- between her adopted parents. Um, her mother, we're presuming probably has some substance, her biological mother and adopted mother have significant substance abuse, which gets passed down to Beth. So that's about a, a six or so on adverse childhood um, experiences. And honestly, I was watching this, and the, for the first episode, I was completely on guard the whole time. I was like, Me too. oh, God, she's going to get sexually abused. I was Me like, too. she's going to get sexually abused at this place, isn't she? Oh, my God, she's going to yep. get se- Because that's a thing, again, we don't like that it happens. It's horrible that it happens. But it does happen in institutional settings for children because people who will go there to prey on the vulnerable because the idea is that these children don't have people looking out for them, and so this is an easy target. Yeah, and, and the part or, where she was with Mr. Scheibel's in the basement as a teacher and a parent made me so uncomfortable for the first, like, two episodes, <laughs> like, until until it was established that he really was a good person. Like, that, I was, I couldn't breathe for, like, the first, because yeah. it's, it's just. just this, this old man who's kind of sitting yeah. there and, you know, and then, or, but here's the thing. She could have even easily had that happen from one of her peers, Right. Again, that was right. something I was a, a, initially a little concerned about Jolene, mm-hmm. because, again, these are things that, you know, if maybe Jolene had had this in her past. And so maybe mm-hmm. she, you know, maybe she's going to act out on this. Right. Like, I just I got very nervous because I'm very aware of the things that happen to children in institutional settings. And um, the part when they adopt her, when the parents adopt her, the, the dad on the drive home says, I'm glad yeah, we got an older they, girl. They just show up and they're like, we'll take her. Yeah. And the, but he says that thing about, like, I'm glad we got an older girl. And I was just like, oh, gosh. And then nothing happened, but there were just all these points where you just think, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, um, and so I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I was like, okay, um, 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 and so I think one of the things we can see with the trauma that Beth has is that trauma really is is ongoing, but, but Beth never gets anything. Trauma can kind of be made a little bit better, but it's, you know, these, these, these things that have happened to you will always be in her past. And there are things that she needs to learn to work over. But she is unfortunately in a time and era where, you know, she's not getting any therapy. The only thing, you know, they give her pills, which is also a, a very true thing that not that, we, not that we just give it. Sometimes it feels like we just give children uh, psych meds because what ends up happening, especially in foster care, and sorry, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant right now. And so somebody like metaphorically throws something at my head when I talk to start talking too much <laughs> it is a lot of what ends up happening with our youth is because they have these high level of ACEs. They have these high levels of trauma. 
they do not respond in school or in other settings the way children who have lower scores or who haven't had that do. Um, and so what you'll end up with is maybe children from a home that's rife with domestic violence. Those children are constantly on edge. They're constantly, they can't sit still because they have, their whole body is just attuned to a constant fight or flight, which people frequently end up mistaking for ADHD, right? Mm-hmm. And so we medicate them out of this biological fight or flight response that their body has developed because they live, they have lived in a, in a home of constant, never ending stress. And so what you end up with is, you know, kids come into foster care and because they have all this trauma that we're not quite sure how to deal with, we don't, it's easier to just give them medication because that feels like an instant fix rather than, Hey, let's, do the two to three hard years worth of work and therapy to get you where you need to be so that this is actually no, so that you can function without this high level of medication, or you can at least function with a much, much lower dosage. Right. Um, and so we have high levels of children coming in with ADHD, oppositional defiance disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, autism. And a lot of these things we get very frustrated with because I'll look at something and they'll have a three-year-old and they'll be like, well, we think that this three-year-old has suspected autism. Like, why? Like, what? No, you can't. You, you, you can't actually even really diagnose it this early. Like, you, just because right. the parent is an idiot and is a bad parent doesn't mean that whatever they say their kid has, they have. Um, because, and so there's a lot that goes in with that. Well, in my understanding is happened- during the 50s and 60s, they were giving out, like, is it barbiturates? That, oh, yeah. Like, right. on the regs. And- yeah, because that because it, it becomes a control issue. And so mm-hmm. what always ends up happening in child welfare and I will and the the state that I work in right now is in the midst of kind of a shift is that the, the state of child welfare is no matter where you are is constantly kind of lurching between an extreme of focusing on controlling safety and then focusing on child well being. And so at the moment, uh the state I'm in is really focused on safety. They care way less about, the state cares way less about well-being because it's hard to get sued over well-being. Well-being is like, well, did we, like, get you your, you know, did we get you your driver's license, that kind of stuff. Um, So they're much more concerned about safety because safety is the things that result in child death, severe abuse, that kind of stuff. And so we are so concerned that nothing like that happens that we don't really consider overall well-being for any of the kids. And you can tell that, that this is very, like nobody's really concerned about these kids well-being, right. When they're at Methune house, right. That, you know, one, they're all wearing uniforms. Um, nobody's really allowed to do that anymore. They're all, they're, they're sharing these massive um, kind of uh, rooms, which again, you're not really allowed to do anymore. You're not allowed to have those kind of big kind of hospital style mm-hmm you know, kind of dormitories. And you also, the other thing you can't do is you can't make kids go to church anymore, by the way. (laughs) You're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, because that's a violation of the child's uh, rights. And so there's just a lot of stuff that ends up going on at this place that I'm just, and that, again, that institutional care is not the best home for kids. That we want kids, if kids are broken 
and traumatized through relationship, the only way that those things can be healed is through relationship as well. And so, you know, maybe if Beth had gotten to go to an actual foster home, right, that may have had a functioning, happy marriage, right, like she could have had a lot better, she could have had maybe a much better chance, right, because she could have seen these healthy relationships. But she's never really seen a healthy male-female relationship in her life. So how well do you think that the show portrayed this for the time period? Like, was this what it was like in the time period? I honestly, I don't know all the details. So I would, I mean, I would, I mean, with the exception of the fact that, like, you have black kids at a white facility. Which, right, again, you right. Would have had it. Um, but I would, I think, I think it's pretty accurate, the idea that, like, because, again, now, if you want to adopt a kid through the state or through a private uh, child placing agency, it is. It takes a lot of work. They have to do home studies. There's a lot that you do for that to make sure that that marriage is actually solid and that something that happens, that like happens um, with her adoptive parents, whose name I can never remember, um, doesn't actually happen, right? And so there's because they just kind of show up and they're like, "Hey, can we have a kid?" So was that how it happened back then, or were they doing home studies back yeah, then? Yeah, so too? it was much. It was it was much more like that gotcha. um, because you know if you were. If you were a middle class white family and we had we kind of wanted to get rid of these kids, like, well, sure, I'm sure it's fine, and you could kind of that you could kind of wave stuff off. Gotcha. There's obviously a lot of mm-hmm. rules on that. Um, I mean, I have a very good to tell you how bad it used to be. I have a very good friend who is uh, whose mother was adopted as a Korean War orphan uh, because his grandfather was a U.S. military officer who was just kind of touring around, and he went to tour the orphanage, and they kind of got along, and the orphanage was just like, hey, why don't you adopt her? And he was like, okay. So he just, like, he had met her twice and just brought this child back with him. Wow. Back in the early 50s. This, like, five-year-old. Wow. And showed up and was like, hey, by the way, we adopted this kid. And, you know, Song is lovely. Song loves her family. This, this, this worked out fine for her, right? But... The idea that, like, oh, well, middle-class white people are just fine, are always fine, and we don't need to worry about them, like, that was kind of a, that, that was a thing. <laughs> deeply so, problematic, yes. <laughs> deeply problematic, but we just presume that this is always going to be okay. Right. Um, and so not only do you have her issues at the orphanage, um, we, haven't, we haven't talked too much about wh- once she actually gets into her adoptive home, you know, her mom, her adoptive mother – is really positive about her, but her adoptive mother also isn't that great either. She very early on is only really encouraging Beth because she sees this as a way for her her to live this kind of money travel lifestyle. Yeah, I, I thought that that was a kind of uh, an exploitive relationship too. Yeah, it was it felt to me it felt very exploitive that you know she's there for her and you know buys her clothes and provides her. But she wasn't going to do any of this, and she was basically just kind of living in this deep depression herself until it's like, ah, oh, I can monetize this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I can go with you, and ooh, you can pay for me to have trips to Las Vegas and Mexico City. And, and so it just felt very exploitive, and that we don't ever really see her doing anything that I would think that I would be like, oh, this is a good mother, Right. It was all very exploitive, like, ooh, well, why don't you go ahead and have a beer with me, and I'll be a cool mom. Like, it was right. all very much, you know, Beth is in high school, and it's like, oh, I'm going to go, like, do a sleepover at these, like, college kids' house. And she's like, well, just be careful what you smoke, you know. Mm-hmm. So even her adopted mother 
though Beth undoubtedly they undoubtedly they have affection for each other. This was not really an overall super positive relationship. It was better than what she had, but it still wasn't really great. Right, right. Well, we need to start wrapping up, but I wanted to touch on the the substance abuse before we go. Um, did you want to talk about like her drug use and kind of that story arc and what they did with that? Oh, yeah. Well, and so for anyone who hasn't seen this, uh, what we end up with is there's a there's a unique visual that they use that very early on when Beth is learning how to play chess back when they're just giving her the tranquilizers. Whenever she takes the tranquilizers, she is able to kind of physically see the board in real space, kind of on the ceiling, and she kind of plays it out in her head um, after she's taken medication. And so what that means is she becomes incredibly emotionally dependent on it because she feels that she's only going to be successful if this one very particular experience happens, that she has this kind of physical, this, like, vision of the board. And so what we see eventually is in certain times of, in certain crush times where Beth will, like, run to the bathroom to, like, take pills that she stole from her mother so that she can have this visualization right. Um, So basically so she can get high. Um, And so what the story, and I don't think, and so the story does show her eventually kind of crashing that lots of people, like, you need to not drink so much. You need to not, but she becomes incredibly dependent on it because of this one. It's like she doesn't trust her own natural ability that unless she sees this vision, right, that she doesn't feel like she can truly do it, even though the vision is still her own mind creating this. Um, and then you have the substance abuse of her adopted mother who essentially dies of, for lack of a better word, being a hardcore alky. Um, yes. <laughs> because... This woman definitely ha- follows the the mother, you know, mother's little helper of just like, oh, I'll just have a little bit of wine with that. I'll just have a little bit of wine with that. Um, and then we even see um, another peer of hers that is seems like maybe even be following along with that, that she needs somebody from high school who she sees is like buying two bottles of wine and just like has it under her baby, her baby carriage, right? That this is kind of just this expected middle Mm-hmm. white woman well of course I'm sure because that's what they did because their whole lives were miserable back in the 50s which is also to me a very sexist statement because I, I there are plenty of women who were actually happy with their family lives not everybody was a complete drunk because <laughs> they were just so unhappy but um, her adopted mother was like this because she was in this kind of loveless marriage for someone who didn't encourage her and so what we see is kind of the two different reasons for why we might have this substance we have kind of the depression with our adopted mother. And then we have her trying to basically like, well, I'm trying to get high because she doesn't trust her own abilities and she begins to use it as an emotional crutch. And she also begins to drink and that um, her alcoholism multiple times ruins her chances of various matches because she uh, completely self self destructs in um, certain high-pressure uh, situations because the only thing she knows to do to help her is to use the substance abuse. And then, obviously, she so she goes into a match either high, stoned, drunk, whatnot. Um, but she kind of pulls out of it because her magical Negro friend is, like, comes in and kind of pulls her out of it. Yes. Without, yes. without any actual real sense of, like, rehab, addressing any of the issues that she's trying to compensate for with all of the substance abuse, that kind of thing. And and her boyfriend's at the end. And, yeah. 
Yeah, I thought for building it up as the huge plot point that it was for most of the most of the story, it really just finished up real quick. You know, there there wasn't there was just like okay, I'm just gonna flush these right now and then never think. And she says something about like I need them or I thought I did, and then like that's it. That's the end of the storyline of that. That's the end of the arc. Yeah. At no point do we ever see her really grapple. Like we see her grappling with it through by, by using the substance abuse. By so she she grapples with the trauma because, through the substance abuse, but she never addresses. We never see her actually addressing the root cause. Like yes. that trauma is all still there. Just because you're not using the substance abuse to mask it, doesn't mean that it's not still there in terms of the pain of your mother committed suicide. All of the men in your life are pretty much. You know, they either want to have sex with you or they just want to ignore you. Like, that's the only two things she's ever gotten from men. Her queer boyfriend did say she broke her his heart yes. when she got mad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I will say, I, I, I did feel for Beth that one moment because I, too, like, that time you're like, oh, he's so nice and, oh, he's so cute. And you're like... Oh, he's gay. Oh, cool. that's too bad. Like, I, that one moment where she kind of has that, I'm like, well, I've experienced that in my life. Uh, he's so nice and he's so sweet, baby. Oh, no, he's not interested at all, is he? <laughs> yeah, and I just felt like they did such a great job of, of exploring the trauma, building it up, and showing you how it affects her her whole life. And then they did nothing to resolve it at all. And it just felt so cut short when it could, like you said, it could have been a really deep, you know, work into you know, her past and how she can resolve that and what she needs to, to come away with and how she can grow. And instead it just became something that she just literally just flushed down the toilet and walked away from and then never really, you know, like it was just another one of those things where it would, it could have been great. I just kept coming back to watching this, that this could have been great. This could have been really great if they had just pushed a little bit deeper and, and thought a little bit more about it. And I wonder, I mean, maybe because I think the book came out in like the, the mid early eighties or so, early mid eighties, and so I, I could totally see that you know they just didn't understand that crap as nearly as much back then, right? Oh yeah, the and that's... you just stop drugs, just stop using drugs, you know, and that the idea that there's stuff behind it. Yeah, the author said that it was actually based on his childhood experience getting addicted to drugs. That he um, he was he had a back injury as a child and was on painkillers and got addicted to them, and so he put that in as part of. Um, you know, kind of his experience, but in the book, and I have not read the book, but from the the reviews and the interviews with him, in the book, he he doesn't say she envisions chessboards on the ceiling, and it helps her. He's it gives her like peace. It, it helps her relax, which to me makes so much more sense because I kept yelling at the screen, "That's not what sedatives do." <laughs> like that's not like, but but in the book, it's it's his actual. You know, he's using that his actual experience of you know using it to escape, which you know is a thing that, that people use it for. Um, so there is that aspect of it where you're right. It is based kind of on some real experience and a little bit less knowledge of trauma-informed care and all that thing for sure. All right. Well, for our passing on, I thought it would be nice to recommend um, some truly inspirational or entertaining fiction or biography, um, either a book or a movie or show, something that you think did a better job maybe at one of these aspects um, or just something else that you think that we should uh, – should enjoy. Um, Sarah, what do you think? What do you have to offer? So, honestly, so what I'm going to recommend is going to sound super weird and out of left field, but that's how I roll these days because pregnancy. Um, so, what I'm going to recommend is an anime series from the early 2000s 
called Higaru no Go. And it is an anime, or started out as a manga, became an anime, about a child in Japan who is haunted by a ghost who lives in a Go board. But, and so the ghost wants to play the game of Go, which is an ancient Chinese board game. Many people compare it to chess, but Go is considered to be a much deeper game because with chess, the board is smaller and the individual pieces have very specific roles, which and so our bishops can only go on a diagonal, our pawns can only move forward, they can only take, you know, they can only take a something else by moving a diagonal. You know, there are very limited rules for some of these pieces. Whereas for Go, it's a much wider board. You just have white and black zones, and so you capture pieces, but any piece can go anywhere at any time. And so it's a much greater difficulty level game. And so what is what happens uh, with this is that you have this child who starts playing Go, and then he he starts to actually learn and play and enjoy it, and that's honestly kind of what uh, that's what that's, I kept thinking about it the whole time while watching this is that, man this kind of feels like he got a no go, and without some of the quite some of the traumatic experiences and the substance abuse, and it is a little out of left field as a recommendation, but why the heck not? I'm always uh, keen to recommend an anime or manga for our listeners because I think it's an incredibly underutilized uh, medium. And so I'm going to rec- recommend an anime for 13-year-old boys. I love it. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, Laurie, what about you? So uh, I am going to recommend a movie that I think handles, um, let me list them up, feminism, trauma, alcoholism and and period pieces also rock and roll a whole lot better than this movie or this show does it's uh pray for rock and roll p-r-e-y because it's a pun um it's about a rock band and the rock band is led by gina gershon and laurie petty who is my hero i've I've wanted to be Lori Petty ever since I saw Point Break as a little kid. And then when she was Tank Girl, I just lost my ever-loving mind. So anything she's in, I love. But it is much better than Queen's Gambit, but also not great like Queen's Gambit. So I want you to watch (laughs) Pray for Rock and Roll. That's amazing. I love y'all's reviews. That's fantastic. Um, I have two recommendations. Um, one is the book Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Her Daughter, Mary Shelley, by Charlotte Gordon. I loved this book. It was a surprise uh, hit for me. Um, it is a dual biography, like the title says, um, where it gives um, alternating chapters in in the biographies of these two women. Um, and even though their lives only inter- overlapped by 10 days, um, Mary Wollstonecraft died in childbed fever when uh, Mary Shelley was only 10 days old. Um, their lives mirror each other and and were influenced by each other very heavily. Mary Wollstonecraft spent a lot of time thinking about um, her children and, and writing for her children. And then Mary Shelley was very much influenced by Mary Wollstonecraft's writings and her life and her legacy. And so it is a fascinating look at both of these women um, and their lives and um, – it is uh, also a fascinating look just at the culture, the people around them, of course, Percy Shelley and uh, Lord Byron and all of them. It's a, it's a really interesting book. It's it's well worth reading. Um, and then I also wanted to recommend um, No Stress Chess. It's a 
the chess set that you buy that um, is designed to teach kids or adults, if you are interested, um, how to play chess in a very non uh overwhelming way it has cards that you can draw that have the different moves on them and kind of shows you what to do and it has levels where you can kind of start at beginner level and move up and um, I know one of the things that has been really positive coming out of the Queen's Gambit is how many um, people have gotten interested in chess Um, sales of boards have shot up so you know people are really interested in especially with the pandemic Um, so if that's something you're interested in the no stress chess kit can really help to um, you can teach yourself, you can teach your kids and, and really have fun. We've taught our kids and we have a lot of fun playing with them. So, well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Laurie and Sarah, I'm Ilya Danner-Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the revelations of Julian of Norwich. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.